0: Your translations have likely laid it out. We're going to read the first ten verses. And I'm not sure what we'll do with the second half of that chunk just yet, but we'll figure it out by the time we get to next week. We do want to slow down and look at just these ten verses together this morning. though. While you're turning there, young Christians and young theologians, we're going to talk this morning about following Jesus. But following Him where? From where and to Where? See if you can hear how we answer those questions. This is the good news of Jesus the Savior through Paul the Apostle... ...in prison of all places, but full of the grace of the Lord nonetheless. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner... ...worthy of the calling to which you've been called... ...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another... ...in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace... In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that he, also, he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. Pray with me. O oh Lord, we've sung of these very things this morning. The King of glory passes on His way. And all the hosts of the saints who have received your salvation and your grace. Cheer you as you process into the heavenly places with victory in hand. And we pray once again this morning you would show us all that your victory entails. That we can rejoice and we can enjoy all that is ours in and through you. And if you'll give to us all of these things then we will be grateful. And we ask All of it, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated. What is true for Jesus is also true for His church. If we were to jump down into the next section of verses, from verses 11 to 16... We would read there that Jesus is called the head and we who belong to him are called his body. And we know that a head and a body don't live severed from one another. The head and the body are one. So what Jesus undergoes, we undergo with and in him. And what Jesus enjoys, we enjoy in and through him. And what Jesus has is also ours. The head is doesn't just think of itself, but it thinks for the body attached to it. The head thinks of the body that's part of it. And what the head gets, the body shares. That's why Paul can write so hopefully from prison, what Christ has, He gives to Paul. And it's also the reason Paul can write so hopefully to the Ephesians, not feeling the least bit jilted or mistreated by sovereignty. He can laugh at his own chains and not resent the Ephesians' their freedom. Paul understands he's not so much a prisoner of the Romans as he is a prisoner for the Lord. There's a difference. What the Ephesians have to enjoy from Christ, Paul has every bit as much, even though he's locked away. As the passage goes on, you really gain the sense that Paul's not worried about earthly prisons. It's the personal prisons, the deeper prisons, the spiritual prisons that he's concerned with in this text. Paul includes a lot of talk of oneness in the passage. It starts in verse 4. There's one body, one spirit, one hope. Then another list of oneness. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Really, we could pull that list apart and look at each piece, but if we hold it all together, it simply means that we are one with Christ. And that oneness is given to us not in abstract terms, but it's given to us very actively down in verses 9 and 10. We're told that Jesus includes himself with us by climbing down to us in descending to earth. And we're told that He includes us with Him by carrying us up in His ascension. Whatever that means, and whatever goes along with that. There is a clue as to what comes to us through His ascension. It's in verse 8. When He ascended, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. That's actually a quote of a verse in Psalm 68, verse 18, that reads... The chariots of the Lord are thousands upon thousands. You, O Lord, ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. There's actually an older, slightly to be preferred translation of both of those verses as they appear in Psalm 68 and now in Ephesians 4. The the alteration would read, when he ascended, he led captivity captive. That helps us a little bit, I think. That's the translation that we want to hold on to this morning. But whatever translation you prefer, or whatever translation is open in your lap, the imagery of the verse is clear. What's being depicted is the victory march, the victory parade. When a king or... A general had won a battle in the ancient world. He would send word ahead to his hometown, the capital city. He would announce the date of his expected arrival... ...and then the townspeople would begin to ready for his return. And on the day that the victor came into the capital city... ...he would ride at the head of the column in his chariot... ...wearing all of his armor, all of his regalia... And the townspeople would come out to meet him outside of the city limits... ...and run with him all the way back into the city. And behind the chariot, the king or the general... ...would have tied and bound his defeated enemies... ...either the enemy king or enemy princes... ...or the opposing general or the high command. And he would pull them in defeat behind the chariot. And behind the prisoners then would come the victorious army... ...marching into the city bringing up the end of the line. And the people would line the streets with flags and banners and the national colors, the national symbols. They would hang out of windows above the streets. There were deafening cheers, thunderous anthems sung. Flower petals filled the air like confetti. Garlands were thrown and draped over necks. The sounds, the fragrances, the colors of joy and celebration... ...because the enemy had been defeated. The enemy was removed. And if you ever lived to see one of these homecomings... ...you would never forget it. All that's being attributed to Jesus. This verse, verse 8 in chapter 4... ...being pulled forward from Psalm 68 is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament verse. Jesus rides his chariot home after he has won the battle and his people receive him and cheer. There is one difference between the way the verse appears in Ephesians 4 and Psalm 68. It's a fairly significant difference. In the verses it appears in Psalm 68, God who is the victorious hero receives gifts from His enemies. Rebels, the verse says. It was a way of acknowledging defeat, recognizing the power of the vanquisher, tributes and offerings were paid to the conquering king or general. But it shifts in Ephesians 4. Here it says, Christ gave gifts. He didn't receive them. He took away everything that the enemy had and he has come home loaded down with treasures to pour out to his people. And there's the full picture. Jesus rides his chariot after defeating the enemy, his people following in procession behind him, worshipping and cheering, overjoyed with what he's done. And Jesus continues to throw out to us a priceless gift. When I'm at home, my daughter has this bothersome habit of following me from room to room. She shadows me and tails me. And sometimes I stop and turn around and I step on her, she's so close. Sometimes without thinking, I push a door shut behind me as I enter a room and I hear a thud and a groan. And sometimes when I realize that she's lurking behind me, I wheel on her and I say, Why are you following me? What do you want? What could you possibly want? And she always says, Nothing, I don't want anything. I never understood that until I studied verse 8. She really doesn't want anything. She wants everything. I've come home and whatever gifts I've brought with me, she wants them. She wants them all. Whatever I have to disperse, that's what she's after. A word, a smile, a touch, time to spend. What does Christ, our head, have to give to us his body? Verse 7 says, there are graces. He dispenses graces. Those are spiritual gifts given to individuals for us to use in ministering to each other and to our neighbors. But that's not really the emphasis of the passage. It's there, but that's not really what the text wants us to see. There's a larger gift in which all these smaller gifts exist and are exercised. And to see the larger gift, we have to follow along behind Christ. But not on his chariot ride of victory. Not on his homecoming or his ascent. We need to follow behind Jesus in his descent. He came down to the lower parts. The earth, verse 10 says. He exited the kingdom of peace and entered the kingdom of fallenness. From paradise to prison, the text says. I don't know if you realize it, but in his incarnation, again and again, Jesus made himself captive. He came into our flesh, a prison of weakness and inability. And he showed both the ruin of our flesh and the redemption of our flesh just by going out into the desert. You have to remember the topography of the place. The desert is the Garden of Eden uprooted. ...Eden laid bare and waste by sin... ...and Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted by no less than Satan for 40 days. It was relentless. And to each hot temptation... ...Jesus answered with a sweet, glorious, satisfied no. And every time Jesus said no... There wasn't a tinge of regret in his heart or his voice. Every time he said no, he didn't feel he was missing out on something. He felt he was gaining, retaining something with that no. It's so unlike us. And to see Jesus living in our flesh like this, our flesh gets to let down in relief finally a body that's not misused a body completely given to worship and faith a body given over to trusting and loving and being pleased in the lord and our flesh gives out a grateful sigh this is what he's making us and jesus came into the prison of the law The problem with the law is that it's a summitless mountain. We think we can scale. With every new altitude you make, there's twice as much mountain still left for you to climb. And with every soaring law you think you keep, you look down to see the progress that you've made, only to find that you're still standing in the foothills. But each time Jesus kept the law... With a heart of divine love. He stood on the heights. The law is our failure. Our exaggerated failure. And the law is the raw beauty of Jesus. He came into the prison of our guilt. He was coronated with a crown of thorns. And bruises on his naked body. Were his robe of royal purple. And his throne was shaped like a cross. And the vows that pinned him squarely in its seat were nails. And he had mockers for his court. And the king of glory made himself the king of guilt. So that he could lead us out of our guilt. And Jesus came into the prison of finality and failure. He came into the prison of death. The curse of the Garden of Eden thickly lined the inside of his tomb. It was waiting on him to swallow him down and never give him up. But because he was sinless, Jesus didn't fit in the tomb. It had to choke him out. And the third day, the heavy stone that closed him in was thrown aside like a pebble. And the one who was carried inside, limp and lifeless, walked out in infinite strength. I think we misunderstand the incarnation. We think that Jesus came into our world like a visitor to Alcatraz, the legendary prison. Now a national park, a monument, a museum. It's eerie to visit Alcatraz, but it's empty, it's scrubbed down, it's sanitized. There's no threat to the place anymore, it's toothless. You can actually stand in a cell and close the door on yourself and feel maybe a shudder of what it was like. But what won't happen to you is a lockdown. ...what won't happen to you is you closed up inside the cell and left there under sentence. You can always swing the cell door open again... ...and step back out into the corridor with the other tourists who have cameras around their necks. People who have come for a casual scare... ...but none of them ever expecting or wanting to feel the full cost of suffering of the place... But when Jesus came into our world, he didn't come as a tourist. When Jesus came into our world, he came all the way in, and he came as an inmate. And lock after lock was turned on him with that sickening, heavy click. The click of forever. In every last prison where we've been trapped, miserable residents... And By the way, he wasn't an escape artist either. He was not a Houdini. He wasn't a showman. One who always had a trick up his sleeve... ...so he could escape just in the nick of time. His work of salvation is not sleight of hand or misdirection. He was locked away without a key... ...and Jesus had no choice but to break every last lock... ...with love and righteousness and grace... It's what all the Messianic prophecies promised. When Messiah comes, the prisoners will go free. And Jesus came to be the uncaptive. That's why the passage translates, He led captivity captive. He drags it behind Him in defeat. He left paradise to come into our prison. To break our prisons wide open. And carry us back into his paradise. And for Paul, all of this comes out. For Paul, all of this is experienced and lived in calling. That word shows up four times in the passage. Twice in verse 1, twice in verse 4. It's stacked up for emphasis. Paul is leaning on calling here. Probably because for Paul, the one thing he could never forget... ...the one thing he could never shake was his own calling. Called from being a Christ-hater to being a Christ-lover... ...from being a persecutor of Jesus to being a church-planter. He was call-haunted. His call was given to him dramatically. Thrown from his horse lying in a heap in the dust of the road, shielding his eyes from a Jesus who stood over him, blazing like the sun at high noon. Paul could never get away from his calling because it was burned into his retinas. He saw spots for the rest of his life. And the scriptures are full of callings like that. Lazarus, called out of the ...stifling sadness of the tomb... ...and Zacchaeus... ...the tax collector and Roman lackey... ...called down from his tree... ...out of his smallness and his hatred of his neighbors... ...and the man inhabited by an army of demons... ...so many of them that they had to be sent... ...into a herd of pigs grazing nearby... ...lurking and living in a graveyard... ...called out of his dark torment and his possession... The wandering leper called out of his uncleanness, his unwantedness. Peter called out of the shrill rooster cry of his guilt. Gomer, the prostitute wife, called from a history of unfaithfulness. Called out of a shame shattered past. And you, the body belonging to Jesus Christ the head, you're part of that list. You have a calling too, Paul says. You're called out of your captivities. You're called out of your jail cells. You can, by the way, be a Christian and still give yourself into all of your captivities. But why would you? Why would the body want what the head doesn't want for it? You can live that way if you want, but it's it's dissonant and it's filled with conflict. Listen, in this passage, Paul is giving to you your emancipation. Five weeks from today, we'll celebrate Easter. And looking ahead to our celebration. If we listen to what Paul says to us here... ...and if we take it to heart... ...we can actually grow in our practice of Easter. Easter can be more for us... ...than just a date on the calendar... ...that rolls around every spring. It can become for us a way of life. And what Paul is saying to us... ...is the Christian faith... ...and gospel faith... ...is a faith lived in decisive moments... In the moment of your insatiable lusts. In the moment of your irrational anger. Seems rational to you at the time. But if you read the faces of everyone else around you, they're shattered and baffled. In the moment of your coveting, wanting something not given to you so bad you can taste it. In the moment of your greed, in the moment of losing yourself in a deep, dark forest of worries and fears and anxieties, it's so dense, you can't see your way clear and find your way back out again, in the moment of addiction, in the moment Of grief threatening to drag us like a riptide into the sea of sorrows. Away from the mainland of hope. In the moment of hatred and grudges and unforgiveness. In the moment of allowing others to impose their expectations on us. Allowing others to tell us what our calling is. In the moment of trusting our hearts to the law instead of trusting our hearts to the gospel. The longer I'm in the church, the more that's where I believe most of us live. We believe grace saves us and we spend the rest of our lives trying to live by law and it's a hellish prison. In the moment of blinding pride, in the moment of unbelief, Jesus cannot love me and I can't give myself over to love Him even though I can imagine it, I just can't bring myself to do it. In those moments, knife-edge sharp, moments that could cut one of two ways. In those moments, you have to believe one call is stronger than the other. One call will win. Which call will pull your heart? The call to come back into your prison? Or the call of paradise? The call of being lost and locked away or the call of being loved by a Savior and cut loose. The call to live in brokenness or the call of the lock breaker. One call is always stronger in the moment. And because Jesus has broken every lock, he can call us out of every cage with a voice of full authority, a voice of loving authority, a voice of assurance and affection. We just need to begin to believe that Jesus has the strongest voice. And by the way, that's our unity with each other. Paul spoke of it, he hinted at it. We're to have unity to share with each other. There's a lot of confusion in the church as to what unity is. It is not seeing eye to eye. It is not having lives that look the same. Building a boring veneer of sameness over our circumstances. It isn't even liking each other. Our unity is in our calling. And we call out to each other with that calling. And it sounds something like this. You're missing the victory march of Jesus. Come out of that cell. The lock has been broken. Come live in Jesus your head... and be uncaptive. The ghost of Jacob Marley... showed up in Ebenezer Scrooge's bedroom... one Christmas Eve... rattling his chains and his locks... warning Scrooge to change his ways... to change his heart... to regenerate himself... Or he would have to drag and clank the same chains forever through the world of spirits and nightshades. But the beauty of the gospel is not warning. Change yourselves or be damned. The beauty of the gospel is calling. Come out of that cell. It has no power to hold you any longer. You don't have to avoid chains. They've already been thrown off. And that's why Paul says in the opening verses, walk according to your calling. Walk free from the chains that Jesus has lifted from you. What you fear and dread the most isn't true. That captivity after captivity will collect you. And your captivities will share you and pass you back and forth. And they'll even fight for custody over you. Now the gospel says something entirely different. The gospel says Christ is the head and you are his body and that makes you the collector. You get to follow Jesus on the victory march collecting broken locks. and May you collect too many to count. Amen. Too long we've been in our prison cells, Lord Jesus, too long we've lived familiarly with our captivity, too long we have lived like prisoners. That you have descended to the lower parts to the earth. You've come to break every last lock. And now you ride in your chariot on your victory march and call us to follow uncaptive, just like you, cheering for our freedom, rejoicing in the priceless gift that we have in you. Ah, for the faith to believe that your voice is the stronger voice in the moment of trial, in the moment of the knife's edge, we pray that you would allow us to believe your voice is strongest ...or your voice is nothing. And we know it's not nothing. We know you have authority over all things. And you can call us out of our dungeons... ...our prisons... ...and the captivities... ...of our fallenness and brokenness and sin. And now we eat the feast. The Victory March deserves a victory feast... This is just a foretaste of what we'll have in eternity with you. But the sweetness of bread and the warmth of wine gladdens our hearts, looses our minds and allows us to know it's for freedom that Jesus has set us free. Allow us to live in the freedom of your holiness. With a bite of bread, call us away from the sins that we inhabit sometimes with joy and delight and with a gulp of wine. Call us to the holiness that Jesus flexed in the desert saying no to temptation and certain he wasn't missing out on anything. Give to us a life like that built on the strong voice of your calling and for it, We will give you thanks.